Our scripture passage today is Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, the preamble to the Ten Commandments. Hear the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. So as I said in the beginning of the service during the announcements, uh, this will almost function like a mini-series, almost like a topical series in the Ten Commandments. Uh, I'm not going to preach next week, and then I have something separate to do during Advent, uh, but in the new year we'll pick up on the first commandment. But before we get into the law of the Ten Commandments, we have to look at why verses 1 and two, as were just read for us, why are they there? You know, why is there a, a preamble or a, a preface to the Ten Commandments that are highlighted in the reading of the law in our liturgy from the Shorter Catechism? I don't know if you should say preamble or preface. I don't think I did a good job of explaining it to my kids last night. Either way, what a preamble is. But there's an introduction. There's a beginning to the Ten Commandments. Trust me, it's very, very important why we're spending a sermon on these two verses. Looking at uh, our outline, well, why is this the structure? And, and by that, I mean of the whole chapter. Why is there a preface before the Ten Commandments? Secondly, I'm going to ask, well, what is the structure? Thinking in particular about the actual preamble. Uh, thirdly, what's the purpose of this structure? In chapter 20. Uh, well, why is this the structure of chapter 20? Why is there a, a preface or a preamble to the Ten Commandments? Why doesn't God just launch into a to-do list? Uh, firstly, I'm going to say that it's because there's a precedent of grace. There is a focus on grace and relationship. If you look at all of chapter 20, as we just read from uh, the law, there's a preamble or an introduction to the Ten Commandments. These commandments will detail the cornerstone of all of the law for the Christian, both Old and New Testament, but it begins with a reminder of God and His redemption of His people, which I'll talk about in a moment. This can be uh, compared, this whole chapter can, can be compared to covenant treaties at the time, by Hittite or Assyrian kings. You would typically have one power uh, dominate another power. They would form some type of relationship or a treaty. In those treaties, there would be some type of a preamble or an introduction to say, well, who, who are we in this agreement, in this relationship, and who are you? The parties would be named. There would be a historical introduction of how they became about in this relationship, then there would be provisions and stipulations of how they're going to maintain a relationship. It's a, it's a contract between two nations. It's exactly what God is doing in that cultural moment in the ancient Near East. 
Before he gives the stipulations of the relationship, he gives the law, he talks about who he is. How did this relationship come about between him and Israel? He talks about grace first. And as I said last week, grace precedes the law. But I would argue this is the structure of the whole Bible. Look anywhere in the Bible and you will find that grace precedes law. And the law actually does come after there's the giving of grace. You can think about Genesis 1 and 2. God created out of grace. He so loved the world that He gave. He gave us existence. He gave us a relationship with Him. He didn't create Adam and then say, I'll have a relationship with you if you do and don't do these things. He first created him and had a gracious relationship with him. And then there were provisions. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, as I read from last week, makes clear that this is true even of Old Testament Israel, where God reminds the people, well, I didn't create you. I mean, I didn't, I didn't establish a relationship with you because you were better because you were more numerous than other people's? No, just because I wanted to. There was no earning of the relationship. If you looked at every letter of Paul, you would see this structure. I highlighted that in our sermon series in the book of Ephesians. I believe that was last year. We know in the book of Ephesians it talks about how to deal with relationships within the church. We know it talks about marriage, it talks about parenting, it talks about dealing with the enemy and the armor of God. Is that in chapter 1? It's chapters 4 through 6. In chapters 1 through 3, it's all about who God is, what He's already done for His people. Then He gives commands to His people. It's in every book of the Bible. It's the fabric of all of human history, and is the fabric of chapter 20. That before the giving of the law, there is the precedent of grace. But secondly, there is actually, therefore, the beauty of the law. Uh, if this is your view of the law, and that it is given from our, our gracious Redeemer, our gracious Heavenly Father, we see it not simply as a difficult and an onerous task. Our view of the law is actually changed and transformed. Puritan Thomas Watson says it succinctly, to obey God is not so much a duty as our privilege. That makes no sense if you grew up in a legalistic household or maybe in a household where you never even talked about the law and obedience to God. But if your view is anchored in the precedent of grace before the law is given, the law shifts from duty to delight. Is that something I'm making up right now in front of you? No, I would ask that you spend some time in Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm in the whole Psalter. Verse 16 of Psalm 119 says, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. And I often quote from verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
Now, we have to recognize there are typically three uses of the law. Firstly, to mirror God's own righteousness. Secondly, it restrains evil. Thirdly, it is a guide into how we are to live. The focus of Psalm 119 is that third use of the law. It's, it's a guide. It's helpful. It shows me what I'm supposed to do to, to obey God. It's, it's helpful. It's a joy. It's a delight. It's a treasure. I want to do it. I only quote it from a couple of verses. It's all over the place in Psalm 119. But that, again, could possibly be in stark contrast to our current understanding. So I would ask you a question. I just made this up on my own. It's probably not great. File all complaints with with Bob because he's not here to defend himself. Answer this question in your own heart. What is your reaction when you're given a godly command? Um, I think there's three options. Don't tell me what to do. Number two, I'm, I'm unable to keep that perfectly. Or number three, you're right, and I want to do that. We have different backgrounds, maybe of how we approach the commands of Scripture. Our own, our own personalities are woven in different ways, but I think there are pendulums. Some of us would look at a command and have somebody come up to us and confront us over that command, and our first reaction is going to be, no one tells me what to do. You don't get to tell me what to do. So we dismiss it. Or we may look at the command and be so crushed and just simply give up to say, well, that's, I can't do that. So therefore, I'm going to dismiss it. We have to go through the third option with humility to say, uh, you're right. And that's what I should do. That's what I want to do, is obey that command. I'll get into specifics in a, in a moment. But that's the structure. There is the precedent of grace in chapter 20 in the book of Exodus, as it's reflective of how God relates to his people as a whole. But that also shows us that there is a, a beauty to the law, even to these Ten Commandments, that we can only really appreciate and see if we see it through the lens of grace, of mercy, which is what it's given. But what actually is the structure then of, of this preface, of these two verses that, that we're focusing on this morning? I think it answers those two questions. Who God is and what He's done for us. For us to grasp grace and move forward in sanctification as a Christian, we have to answer those two questions and never move away from them. Well, who is God? There's a focus in this preamble, obviously, on the one who initiated the covenant relationship with Israel. That's God Himself. He started the relationship. He's the sovereign or the suzerain power. So He's going to tell them the terms of this relationship in the Ten Commandments in a moment. It's God also who will be the basis for what it looks like to obey, as I said last week. The law is a mirror into the heart of the lawgiver. The law details for us who who he is, what he cares about, what he's like, and what he commands us to do. 
But Alec uh, Matir, another commentator, he rightly points out that there's, uh, in Leviticus chapter 19, this is just an example, uh, there's this phrase, I am the Lord. It's used 16 times in Leviticus chapter 19. In Leviticus chapter 19, as, as Matir points out, there's a jumbled collection of laws that are related to uh, religious, domestic, social, horticultural, ritual, agricultural, and sexual life. All in chapter 19 of Leviticus. And it's, it's almost like this just jumbled collection of just rapid fire, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, and like all of life. But Matir's point is just like real life, we have all kinds of contexts in which we're called to obey. You just think about your own daily or weekly existence. There's all kinds of categories where the Lord gives us commands of what to do and what not to do. But again, in Leviticus 19, 16 times you just stumble as you're reading that chapter. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Do this because I'm the Lord. Don't do that because I am the Lord. There is this focus, not simply on the commands, but on who's commanding. That is so key and crucial. This is... Do what I tell you because I am the Lord, but I want you to live this way because I am who I am. It's all based and anchored on, on who He is, on His own character. That goes back to the first use of the law. Like I said, the whole law is a mirror into God's own character. So like we said last week, the law is a reflection of who He is. Uh, the Hebrew is also explicit, as it is in the English, that He is your God. So he says, I am the Lord, your God. So this, this God is desiring a personal relationship with, with this nation, the, these people. This is, this is not some capricious, distant lawgiver who's simply lofting out commands in hopes that someone responds, but has no real care or interest in these people. But he says to Moses, now you need to tell them I'm the Lord, your God. I am yours. Back to Thomas Watson, he says this, though a preface to the law is pure gospel, the word Eloha, thy God, is so sweet that we can never suck all the honey out of it. He's, he's naming himself. He's addressing the recipients of this law, saying, here's who I am, and I belong to you in this covenant relationship. Not capricious legalism, but from a father to a son or a daughter. I'm your God. That's who He is. But what has He done for us? Who is this person who's given us this law? Well, there is explicit reference to what God did for those people in particular. It says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This will be repeated over and over in the Old Testament. Firstly, in taking them out of the land of Egypt, I again agree with Tom Watson that he took them away from idolatry, which is an exceedingly great mercy. 
This isn't always the case, but I had a seminary classmate from Chicago named Jesse. And this is certainly not uh, similar to my testimony by any means, but he is one of those power testimonies. Or when he came to faith, he had uh, not grown up in a Christian home. And by high school, he was into hard drugs. But when he came to Christ, he did no more drugs. And he's never since even been tempted. Because the Lord took him out. Took him out of that type of relationship, of that type of sinful pattern. Now, while we can never necessarily be out of the world, this is where God's placed us, there are times when things get so bad where God takes us out of a certain situation, out of a place, which was Egypt, where there was nothing but idolatry, nothing but other gods, foreign gods, who were, they were worshiping the creation. There was no Sabbath. There was no day of rest. There was no human rights, no respect of families, total idolatry. And he says, I've taken you out of that land. Similarly, in the first uh, membership class uh, that Jody and I took together as a married couple, the pastor was explaining the fifth membership vow regarding church discipline. And he said, with confidentiality and taking out details, that recently he and a few of the ruling elders had to go somewhere and physically, lovingly remove a man from a situation. I've never forgotten that because I was like, oh my goodness. But he was explaining how the session shepherds actively men and women in that congregation. There's probably 20 or 30 of us sitting there looking at each other going, well, this is serious. I don't even know what was going on. But they, had, they knew and attracted this man lovingly for enough time to know what he was doing and where he was doing it. And they went and said, you're coming with us. You need to get out of that situation. They removed him from whatever he was doing. It was destroying his life and his family's life, obviously. That's what God has done for these people. They no longer live in the land of Egypt where there is pure idolatry but he took them out. But then secondly, it says it's out of the house of slavery. There's another, there's another description, not simply out of that land, but out of, out of slavery. He's freed them from sin and suffering in their bondage. He took them out of the house of slavery. Now, they were denied human rights. They were treated cruelly. Like I've already said, there was no Sabbath day rest of any kind. Jeremiah 11.4 speaks of this bondage as a furnace. Deuteronomy 4.20 will say the same thing. It was intolerable suffering, but God delivered them. The suffering was finite. It was temporary, although it lasted for generations. We don't know why the Lord allowed that. He's the one who brought Joseph, Jacob, to this land. But they suffered. But God took them out of the sin, of the slavery, of the bondage. Psalm 22.4 says, In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. Psalm 15 says, 
Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Trust in the Lord. Not in our circumstances or in other governments or in other humans or in ourselves. Trust in the lawgiver. Trust in what's being said in this preface to the Ten Commandments about who God is and what He's done for us, that He has brought redemption despite the current suffering that we face. The suffering is temporary. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So in, in trying to obey these commands, or any command, we often focus on symptoms, which is our sin. But we don't often focus on why we're sinning, which is often a distrust or a misunderstanding of who God is, which is why this is so focused on before the law is given. Why do I look at the Ten Commandments and look at several of them and say I'm, I'm consistently breaking them? Well, just do better and try harder. No. Why are you doing it? You think there's something good that God is withholding from you. And that's not true. You think there is something that God wants you to earn so that He'll love you. That's not true because He already does. The key for you and I resisting temptation and growing in holiness and sanctification is not focusing on our sin, but on why we do it. We have to go back to the preface to the Ten Commandments. Say, well, who is he who's commanding me this? What has he already done for me? That unlocks the key for obedience, which is the purpose of this structure in chapter 20, obedience. Of course, we're used to hearing that because when we look at the Ten Commandments, we think, he's telling me to do something. Obviously, I'm supposed to obey. But that's the purpose of why there's a preface. And then there's the Ten Commandments. It's not so that you will receive grace and then sin all the more, as Paul addresses in Romans 6. There's the preface to the Ten Commandments so that you will obey everything that he says. Because of who he is and what he's already done for you. Now you might say, well, um, let me push back. The Ten Commandments are not relevant for today. That's the Old Testament. That's Israel. That's not me. That's not the opinion of Jesus and Paul. In Mark chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus references several of these commandments. In Romans 2 and Romans 13, 8 through 9, Paul references several of them explicitly. These Ten Commandments are relevant for today. They are in play. So, As we move from this preamble in subsequent weeks and look at the Ten Commandments, you can't object and say, it's not relevant. Old Testament, that's Israel. That's not what Jesus and Paul say. There's the expectation that there is relevance for the here and now. But the purpose of the intentional flow from grace to law is not so that we would look at the commandments and go, well, you don't get to tell me what to do, God. I'm the master of my life, and you don't get to tell me what to do. But it's also not to say, I can't do this perfectly. I don't need to care about this because I'm going to fail all the time. 
But it's to receive it from our Heavenly Father and say, this is what I was created to be. This is what I'm supposed to do as an image bearer. Whatever you tell me, Lord, is what I want to do. Help me to do it. There's the call to obey in all of life, as these commandments cover all of life. Moses says in Deuteronomy 4.14, The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Do them. You're going into Canaan, very much like Egypt. They don't have Sabbath in Canaan. They don't worship the one true God. They don't believe in marriage. They don't believe in sanctity of life. They don't believe adultery is wrong. But I'm telling you, regardless of all of that, to go to Canaan and do these things. Obey me. I'm the Lord your God. Regardless of persecution, regardless of personal sacrifice or comfort in the moment, do these things. Because I'm your heavenly father. And this is how we act in my family. We obey. As stated in the Shorter Catechism that we already said, the sum of the law and these commandments, according to Jesus in Matthew 22, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So as we think about the Ten Commandments, it's broken up that way. How do we love the Lord our God? The first four commandments. How do we love our neighbor as ourselves? The last six commandments. We are to obey all of them. So let me let me take the boat. Let me take the boat out on a lake and take it for a spin for a second here. Let's look at some of the Ten Commandments. How's this going to work? Have no other gods before me, regardless of the Canaanite gods and however many they're going to be. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't capriciously speak my name because I am your holy God. Keep the Sabbath day holy. I just said in Exodus 16, the manna and the bread fall twice as much on the sixth day. Why is that? Go back and read chapter 16. Don't go looking for food on the Sabbath. That's for worship and for rest. You weren't given rest in Egypt for generations. I've given you a day where you don't have to go to work. You don't have to think about work. You shouldn't think about work. Our confession of faith says only for works of mercy and necessity go to work on Sunday. Don't, don't do whatever you want to do on the Lord's Day, which for us is the first day of the week. The week end is Saturday. The Lord's Day is the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Trust me, a week per commandment. I won't tell you everything that I'm going to say when I get to the fourth commandment. But for many of us, this is one example, culturally, we would say legalism. You don't get to tell me what to do. And God says, this is the fourth commandment. It's a blessing. 
obey me and worship and rest on Sunday. If you have issues with that, struggles, questions, any elder would love to talk to you about that. Why are these first four commandments focused on God himself? It's a command that we should honor the Lord, that we should love him. How do we love him? Have no other gods before him, no idols, no name in vain. Worship and rest on the Lord's day. That's how you do it. From that will flow love of neighbor. What would we mean by that? Again, just looking briefly. Respect parents. Don't take a life. Reserve all sexual relations only for marriage and only for your spouse. Don't take something that's not yours. Don't gossip or ruin the reputation of someone behind their back. Don't desire anything that's not yours. Regardless of how culturally crazy that sounds, it sounded as crazy then. And God gave them these commandments. Now again, I just, I just took the boat out for a spin. It feels, it feels kind of like legalism, doesn't it? You're giving me all these commands. See, the church and Christianity is all about telling me what I can't do and what I should do. Legalism. I love Keller's illustration that he often gives that we have to live within the right restrictions. A fish has to have the restriction of water to live and to flourish. But our culture tells us, I, I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want. And God's word says, no, that's destructive. Freedom is found in obedience to God's word. Explicitly written in those Ten Commandments. That's freedom. We have been freed to obey as image bearers. Deuteronomy 4, Moses commands obedience of the people before they enter the promised land. And he specifically speaks to them in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy about idolatry because he knows that's what's coming into their life. And he says it's forbidden. But then he says in Deuteronomy 4.20, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. See, he, he puts it in play. Here are the commands, but let me remind you of the grace that you have already been given. And again, brothers and sisters, we have a bigger reason, a better reason, that the Lord Jesus, he kept all of these commandments. He never sinned. He actively obeyed the entire law. He was tempted just like we are. He was without sin because he kept the law for us. We're lawbreakers. In his ministry and in his life, he was sinless. He kept all of the law. And on the cross, 
He gives us that record of perfect obedience. And he's, he loses his life because he dies for the sins that we have committed. But brothers and sisters, you haven't been taken out of Egypt. You've been taken out of the evil of this world. The evil one no longer has dominion over you. You've been taken out of the house, not of physical slavery, but out of the house of slavery of your sin, where you have been shown the law, you have been redeemed, so that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. But why would you do that? Because He's redeemed you. He's given you eternal hope. He kept the whole law. You want to look at a perfect example of a law keeper? No one else but the Lord. He is our standard, not so we can earn His favor, but because we already have it. As we move through the Ten Commandments, may we be challenged, as we're going to be, but may we be blessed and encouraged, because we're not obeying out of fear. We're obeying out of love, the love that we have first received. So therefore, the law is not a duty, but a delight. Let us pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this short preface or preamble to the Ten Commandments, these, these two verses which highlight for us the structure of the entire Bible, which is that grace precedes law. But then it tells us very explicitly who you are and what you've already done for us. And we have all the more reason because you so loved us. Father, you sent your only Son. He kept the whole law actively, passively. And paid for our law breaking on the cross. Not that we would go sin the more. But that we would stop sinning. And falling into temptation. And know the joy and the delight of obedience to your word. May we all grow in that understanding. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.